Welcome to Ricochet's Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute, The Week Magazine, and CNBC. Each week, the podcast features a lively conversation with top thinkers and doers on the most important and interesting economic and policy issues of our time. Archived episodes can be found at ricochet.com and follow up blog posts and transcripts at AEI.org. My guest today is President Obama's former top economist, Jason Furman. Dr. Furman was chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors from 2013 until the end of the president's second term, and he's currently a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School and a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He's here today to discuss his time in the White House and all things economic policy. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, I want to start by looking uh, looking backwards. Uh, you were a top economic advisor uh, to candidate Obama during the 2008 campaign, and you came with him to the White House. So you get so you arrive at the White House and you immediately have to deal with an ongoing economic crisis in full swing. And I was and I was I was thinking about that today uh, on my way to the office. I, th- I thought about the TV show The West Wing. Now, The West Wing, and I'm not like an avid watcher, but I know a little bit. I know mm-hmm. The West Wing, the elections don't happen in the same years as in our real universe. Like, I think the presidential elections are like off by two years. So they're like in the midterm year. <laughs> so I'm wondering, let's say uh, the president, Obama, he would have been elected in 2006. Let's say we had a 2006 presidential election, which means he would have taken office in 2007 just as the financial crisis was sort of getting going, we had problems with you know various hedge funds uh, that year. Uh, we started talking a lot about the mortgages. Uh, ben Bernanke gave a speech about, about mortgages. He didn't think he thought it was a ha- it was a it was a problem we could deal with. So the the financial crisis was sort of just kicking into gear. I was wondering, had you been head of the National Economic Council or head of the CEA or in some way advising the president in two thousand and seven? as the financial crisis was sort of really picking up, what kinds of things do you think you would have been saying as you sort of looked at these events happening in real time? How do you think you would have reacted to that? Um, that's a great question. It's certainly the first time I've ever gotten that question. I think to some degree you know the answer to it because candidate Obama was in real time talking about what he would be doing. Um, It made that campaign very different from other campaigns. Normally, you talk about the ideas you want to do after you're elected, and normally you do heavy contrast between those ideas and what the incumbent from the other party or the challenger has. Um, Here on some things, and this is getting to 2008, you had President Obama during the campaign actively supporting TARP you know, returning to the Senate, making a speech for it, making phone calls. I was with him when he was calling members of the Black Caucus, for example, to get them to vote for TARP, really actively lobbying for it. And this was in a campaign that was all about change. He embraced the least popular economic policy um, that President Bush had. If you you know, move back a year in time, as you asked me to, with the question – I think some things he was different than the Bush administration. He was talking early on about the need for more financial regulation. I think by 2007, that would have been too late, obviously. The horse was out of the barn, but that was something that he was focused on from an early stage. He was um, very focused on housing. Um, On some other aspects of the response, though, I think he would have been pretty similar. Um, The the fiscal response, for example, the Bush administration – Doing a fiscal stimulus in February 2008, 
before most people were talking about it. That was very well timed and, and very well but, done. But certainly, the kinds of things that you might talk, what you might have a candidate talk about in a campaign, might be different than what they would consider once they've been elected and they're in office. Is there anything that you, that you might have suggested that? You know, it would have been a tough sell as someone's running for president, but it was something that, you know, that in, in, in private you'd have said, we need to consider this. Right. I mean, you know, Jim, this sounds corny, but he approached the financial crisis right. like he was sort of what I would do if I was president, not as a candidate. We would have meetings and the political people would all be present in which all he wanted to talk about was whether it was better for TARP to be used for – equity injections or buying toxic assets. We could talk about this for an hour. And David Axelrod and David Pluff would be glaring at me, you know, what are you doing? He needs to make some big decisions about, you know, where to run ads, what states to campaign in, how to deal with the next debate after he's elected, if he's elected. Um, then you can spend all the time you want deciding between equity injections and purchasing toxic assets. But right. that was – I think he really approached it in governance mode. I mean he, I was, he was in touch with you know, Bernanke, Paulson, had a meeting with President Bush. I mean he was thinking about this from a governing perspective, not a campaigning. Do you think there's anything that could have realistically been done – in maybe even going as far back as 2006 when things began to kind of, you know, tip over. But 2007, 2008, whether, whether it was uh, a fiscal policy or whether it was the Federal Reserve, the things could have been done realistically in those years to either uh, avoid, uh, avoid the Great Recession or make it just, you know, or moderate it considerably below. You know, we had em- employment up to 10 percent. So something either a very, make it turn to either a very modest recession or, or avoiding recession completely. Yeah. I think that the monetary response, policy response was good, mm-hmm. but it took a little bit of time to get started. I think at the time I was of the view that we could be cutting interest rates more aggressively. The Fed eventually became very aggressive. But a couple months after, I think that it was clear that that was needed. I think second of all um, – some of the initial ideas floated by Treasury, like the super sieve, the as we were just talking about, the buying toxic assets. I think it was clear from earlier that something more, um, you know, equity injections and requiring banks to take it, not just a voluntary arrangement was needed. Um, and then the huge wild card in all of this is um, Lehman Brothers. Right. And I certainly at the time, in my statements on the Republic, I was very concerned about the moral hazard associated with the rescue of Lehman Brothers. Um, you know, in retrospect, Tim Geithner's counsel that in general, in the middle of a crisis is not the time to worry about moral hazard was probably a better way to think about that question. So we, it sounds like a pretty severe recession was was going to be in the cards no matter no matter what I mean, we did. House prices were right. really elevated right. and they were going to come down by 2006. Most of the securities were in existence that were using this um, as securitization for it. So I think I think the one thing that's the difference between the crisis we had and something milder is could something – would in another world you have rescued Lehman? I think that's right. the only large discrete change that would – could have – could have had a large discrete difference in outcome. All right. Now, and since you know, since the recession, we've had a recovery, which if you just judge it by past recovery, seems like it's been slow. I don't know if it's necessarily 
slow given this, the kind of recession we had. But certainly, I think people who, if their memories are, you know, the, the, the recovery in the 80s after the early 80s recession where we saw, you know, growth, growth picked up, was very, very fast and stayed fast. Maybe that's what people thought would happen. So why – is that the reason the recovery has been so slow, just the nature of that recovery? Or are there other things going? I mean, sort of what's your theory of the slow recovery? I have uh, – I think three things have played a role. Number one is the hangover from the right. financial crisis. And we know from centuries, uh, research on centuries of data, that it can be slow and painful. And in fact, the United States recovered more quickly than most of the other advanced economies and than most historical precedents, given the severity of the financial crisis. Is it, is it, right. It's because it was not just a recession caused by the Fed's cranking up interest rates, because it was – and. I'm, you know, I'm looking, I suppose, to debate causality, but that there was a financial, banking, housing crisis, right. all is all right. part of it. Okay. Right. So that's number one. It was not a garden variety right. American right. recession. Right. Number two is, which would have happened without the recession, is just our demographic situation changed relatively dramatically in 2008. 2008, the first baby boomers were born in 1946. Mm-hmm. They turned 62 in 19 in 2008. That's when they became eligible for Social Security, and that led to a large slowdown in the potential workforce. Now, that was predictable. That was built into a number of the forecasts, but I think some people extrapolated from the previous decade and forgot to adjust their extrapolations for the different demography. Right. Um, the third factor is that productivity growth slowed down around the advanced economies that slowdown appears to have started around 2004 or 5. Mm-hmm. People hadn't noticed it by 2007. In part, um, the data was subsequently revised right. down, so it wasn't really even fully in the data. And, you know, no one, no sane person looks at high-frequency productivity numbers and infers everything. In retrospect, it's clear that um, – you know, the productivity boost from 95 to 2005 was temporary and went away. So I think there's the recovery from the financial crisis is what caused some of the initial weakness. I think if you're looking at a longer time period and asking why growth has been slow, it's primarily that um, demographic change, which there's relatively little we can do about, and the productivity change, which, um, you know, there may or may not be. Right. So you had sort of – you had – sort of these kind of longer-term structural factors, and then on top of it, you layer on a really, you know, once in 100 years sort of financial crisis or financial crisis-driven uh, recession. All right, so what what about secular stagnation? That seemed, I mean, that that's also a theory that's been given to why growth has been so, so, so low. Do you believe in secular stagnation? I, I think there's different flavors and varieties of this theory. What, What's your take yeah. on that? So let's uh, let's define terms. If you, we went back in the year to the year two thousand or two thousand five, and said, "Hey, in two thousand seventeen, the growth rate's going to be about two and a half percent, and you know the outlook going forward is about two percent growth," people would have been unfazed and maybe even pleasantly surprised. The growth forecast that people were making, if you look fifteen twenty years ago. We're for growth now to be about 2%, right. maybe even a bit less than 2%. So I don't – you know, when people talk about our growth rate being a new normal, a new mediocre, a new this, a new that, that's all wrong. It was fully expected to be about where it is okay. now. The really surprising thing is where interest rates are. If you told somebody 15 years ago 
that the 10-year is going to be around 2.8%, they'd be pretty surprised. If you then went on to tell them that the you know, debt was going to be about 75% of GDP right. and the deficit was going to be 3.5% of GDP and rising, oh, and interest rates are 2.8%, I think they'd be pretty shocked. So that's so, kind of where the mystery is. Right. It's not so, so much think, of GDP, it's what's happening with it. Exactly. So the big surprise in the world is that interest rates are a lot lower than we right. thought, not that GDP growth is lower than we thought. And if you want to call that secular stagnation, uh, go ahead. And, and, why, and why, should, why should I care about that, where interest rates are, uh, other than the fact that you know, if I obviously if I buy a home, interest rates are important, but that doesn't nece- that's not necessarily telling me anything going forward about about job growth or GDP growth or wage right. growth, is it? Right. I I, th- I think in some ways it's unfortunate that the term secular yeah. stagnation has been attached to that because that has this, as you said, that has this negative connotation to it. I think there's something a little bit neutral about interest rates being lower. There's a set of pros, which is our fiscal situation is more sustainable. It's easier for people to borrow. Um, There's a set of cons, certainly anyone that has assets, um, and it can lead to more reaching for yield. You know, it has two downsides. One is it constrains monetary policy, that conventional monetary policy at least. You can't cut rates as much as you used to be able to cut rates, and so we'll have a bit less ammunition to deal with future recessions. That's fully solvable. There's a lot of ways to solve that. But that's a one issue. And a second is maybe it leads to this extra reaching for yield in financial markets right. and some more financial frothiness, although I'm less sure about that. But yeah, absolutely. I think if you had told somebody 15 years ago the Treasury is going to be 2.8, they would have thought that was good news, not not bad news. All right. We're going to take a, a quick break, hear from our sponsor, and we'll be back. Uh, we're back with Jason Furman, and we've been talking a little bit about sort of how we got to where we are with the current U.S. economy. Let's take a maybe a closer look how things are going. Uh, things seem like they're going okay. Economy is growing 2%-ish. Uh, unemployment down. Uh, there's a lot of forecasts saying we're going to see unemployment, the, the likes of which low levels that we haven't seen in, you know, in just decades. You know, I think Goldman Sachs has, has forecast that unemployment, you know, down close to 3%. I think some other investment banks have seen unemployment below 3%. So it seems like the job market is pretty strong. Why haven't we seen faster wage growth? If we, I mean, I suppose if, if someone said, gee, the unemployment rate is going to be, you know, below 4%, headed down to 3%, maybe, would you have expected to see faster wage growth? Because that's been sort of the big knock on this economy is just we're not seeing in the paychecks. Yeah, and that every year I've thought next year – we're going to see nominal wage growth in the threes. Right. And then next year rolls around and – You thought it's been sort don't. of mid-twos. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah. And then it's increased a little bit. I mean if you look at the totality of indicators, nominal wage growth is faster now than it was a year or two ago and it's faster than, than it was before um, that. Partly it's that productivity growth is slow and – that tells you what sustainable wage increases can be. Partly because people aren't, if aren't becoming more productive, their wages aren't going to go up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, wages sort of broadly speaking track productivity. They and can productivity has be, been sort of in the around officially one. measured. It's week. been about one. Yeah. So, so I think partly it's low productivity. I think partly it's low expected inflation. So, you know, people look at the nominal wage growth in the 90s, but that was in part because inflation was a lot higher and expected to be a lot higher then um, than it is now. But um, the last part of it is more puzzling. And there's, I think, two hypotheses. One is that there's a lot more slack in the economy than people think. I think there's some evidence for that. I'd like to think that. The problem with that theory is it would have predicted 
much lower wage growth five years ago when there was more slack. Okay. But if anything, five years ago, it was a puzzle that wage growth and inflation were so high, right. even though the and is the evidence for slacks is it, or is it people are looking at sort of you know the the prime age you know uh, participation rates and so forth. I mean, where where when people say oh there's still a lot of slack, is it just they're just figuring they're just looking at the slow wage growth and thinking oh there must be a lot of slack, or there are there things they're actually pointing to in the data that say well that number should be a lot lower. That, right. Yeah. Right. I think at this stage, attempting to directly measure slack. You're not going to find any. Right. Yes, you can look at prime age workers. Their employment rate is four tenths of a percentage point worse than what it was at the end of 2007. Maybe that's some very small amount of slack. Mm-hmm. The only case for slack doesn't come from directly observing right. it, but from indirectly measuring its consequences. So that's, so that's one. So one theory is there's just some 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 slack in there. Right. Tough to find, but it's there. And so what's the other? Right. One? And then there's a second theory that for Various reasons, wages and prices are less responsive to economic conditions than they used to be. And that theory is symmetric. So when we had a lot of slack, Mm -hmm. we didn't see a big decline in inflation and wage growth. And when we have very little or negative slack, we don't see a big increase in them. So that second theory is a flattening of the Phillips curve. That matches the data very well. Um, it has the problem. We don't have a fully great story for it. You know, part of the story is a tautological one of inflation expectations are more anchored. And when they're more anchored, people don't change their price setting in response to changing economic conditions. But there's a certain unsatisfying circularity to that. But I do think trying to understand and explain not just what's going on today with slow wage growth, but also why wage growth was so fast when slack was so high – couple of years ago, um, I think you want a theory that encompasses both of those data points. If, if as a, the unemployment rate falls, if it falls, and we see wage growth pick up and it starts, you know, and it's 3%, maybe a little bit over 3%, does that, does, does that answer a question? Does that then eliminate some theories? At that point, do we think, oh, it was just, hey, we're, st- we're still recovering from a really bad recession. It just took a lot longer for wages to get back. Is, would that, what, what would... What would that data point tell us if we actually saw an acceleration from here? I think that would eliminate the theory that there's – not eliminate, but it would be evidence against the theory that there's no such thing as a Phillips curve. Right. Um, and there would be evidence for the idea that at some point right. you raise employment enough and it, it shows up in right. wage growth. Uh, you mentioned the weak productivity growth. What is your theory why productivity growth has been so persistently weak? There's a lot of theories out there that we're measuring it, measuring it wrong, um, that there's actually a lot of innovation. It's just not translating it because it's kind of in a few companies and it has to diffuse throughout the broader economy. Until that innovation does, we're not going to see it reflect in the big numbers, that there's actually just something wrong with the U.S. economy. We're not as, there's not as much dynamism. We're not seeing as, as many people sort of switch around and move to better jobs. We're not seeing new startups. What sort of your theory and where you see the explanatory power residing? So I think about half of it is a slowdown in capital formation. That I interpret mostly as a temporary effect of the financial crisis, of the slow recovery we were talking about. And I would expect that to reverse itself. And the half of productivity growth we've lost because of slow capital formation We'll get that back, at least maybe not make up for it, but at least have that come back. A cyclical thing. I think about half of it is, not I think, when you do the growth accounting, about half of it is slower total factor productivity growth. Which people, 
that's that's what you know someone like me that's innovation right that's innovation right, right. yes i mean yes you want to have 82 footnotes and caveats right, but right. Uh, we can yeah. call it innovation right. between friends and that's also a lot slower now that tends to be pretty inertial pretty serially correlated so if you've had 10 bad years of it that's sort of bad news for the next 10 years right. and um i think in part that's just that you know we got our hopes up unrealistically. 95 to 2005 was an aberration mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, maybe it was a miraculous economy. Maybe it was a huge bubble. But either way, just not what we should expect our future to be. But I do think that um, Nick Bloom and his co-authors have a paper on it becoming harder to find ideas that I would recommend to everyone to read. And um, it's really quite scary because in every area, we're putting more resources into R&D and into innovation, and we're not getting commensurately larger outputs out of it. But what do you think about the – and that is – and we have a link to the paper when we uh, uh, post the podcast. What do you think of the idea – and we had Hal Varian on here, and I ran a couple of theories by him. I ran that we're just mismeasuring it wrong, and maybe that has – something to do do with it. We have trouble measuring the digital economy and all that. Uh, but the idea he really glommed onto was the, this diffusion idea that sort of, you know, the innovation is here. It's just not equally distributed. It's that you have, they have many sort of leading companies. They're at the technological frontier, very fast growing, tons of innovation, very productive. And they're just kind of separating from the rest of the economy. And the problem is it's just either takes for some reason that that innovation isn't spreading or it just takes a while for different companies to learn how to use AI or new technologies and it's just this kind of a, it's kind of like the be patient theory it's here it, and eventually it'll it'll uh, spread out into the broader US economy okay the it's already here theory that we're mismeasuring it yeah. everyone's seeing huge wage growth we just didn't re- they just don't realize it that I have very little patience for as a hypothesis. Right. I don't – I see very little But it's here, but it's only, it. only, oh, no, no, no. It's only yeah, some places. Right, 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 right. So the like it's here and people just don't realize it because they're seeing bad data and right. bad – you know, right. people people are depressed about their economic situation because they just read all this bad data in the newspaper. But really they're getting large raises when you right. adjust for everything correctly. That I don't believe. It doesn't match – People's self-reported well-being doesn't match what we know about well-measured sectors of the economy. I think it's possible that the productivity will come. We just need to wait for it. I confess people have been talking about that theory for a number of years now, and I'm getting increasingly impatient as each year goes by without seeing that productivity growth. A lot of that theory rests on basically two data points, electrification and computers. The computers isn't even a particularly good data point because we waited a while. Then we got really good productivity growth for a decade and it went away. So on average, you didn't even – That's when the mismeasurement got worse. Right, exactly. (laughs) Um, And then um, the last thing I'd say is just this again. um, In most every sphere that we look at, there does seem to be this monotonic worsening of how much harder it is to innovate. So I think we're going to need AI just to make the next set of innovations just so we can have, you know, one or 2% productivity growth. Right. So, and that's, uh, and artificial intelligence, that's something that when you're at CA, uh, you wrote about, talked about, uh, produced some papers. Uh, Now we're sort of Everybody's talking about AI. It seems like all the time, whether whether it's a good thing and it makes us more productive, or worried about, uh, you know, it's going to take all the jobs. But that it's something we're talking about. And uh, uh, there's like now there's a national security element because now China they want to be an AI leader. So 
what does a pro AI policy agenda look like? First, very low capital gains taxes. I know we'll stipulate that. <laughs> um, first of all, it just starts from saying the more AI we have, the better off we're going to be. This is not something that workers should be afraid of. It's more likely to give them a raise than it is to take their job. It's not something that we should be afraid of. It's more likely to you know, replace humans at the things they're bad at. And there's an awful lot humans are bad at um, and do things better for all of us. So one, we should want more of it. I think we need more government research. Mm -hmm. There's a lot being done at private companies. It's hard for us to compete, but they still don't have a sufficient incentive to do the types of basic research we need. Is it just, I think, just very basic research or is it not just like the, if it's not just kind of blue sky kind of science. Is it more, a little bit more applied? Yeah, it's a little bit more applied. It's a little bit more applied. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, second, I don't think we need a whole lot of regulation, but I think more, especially on issues like privacy and cybersecurity, would give people the comfort and reassurance that they want and I think probably deserve in a way that I think would help us enable advances in those technology and broader support for it. And third, I think AI is to a first and second approximation a really good thing. But to a third approximation, there will be some downsides um, for some workers, um, potentially some downsides in terms of inequality. And so being far more vigorous in terms of education, training, and a more progressive fiscal system to ensure that everyone can benefit and share in the benefits of it would, I think, be helpful as and, well. And do you think that that will make that will keep us or make us the AI leader? And uh, we don't have to try to mimic what China does, which I imagine they will invest a lot of money, not just in basic research, into companies uh, building their own uh, government financed. AI industrial parks. It sounds there. It is a full. I don't know what. I don't know if it's a Manhattan project, uh, or if it's like a, a, it's like the space shot for them. But that they seem like they are all in on AI. Yeah. Do, we, do we do we need to do? I mean, investment. Uh, right. Do we need to do, do I mean, anything different? Right. I mean, do we need to have our own sort of Manhattan project. I mean, if you look at Google and Microsoft and Facebook. Right. You know, they're all in on AI. They are spending a lot, a lot of money and putting a lot of talent into this question. I don't think the United States government is capable of doing what the Chinese government is doing, and I'm not sure it would be good even if we were. So, yes, I think thumb on the scale and point to China and scare people if you want for some more government resources going into this. But most of it is going to be coming out of the private sector. And so I think helping to build the public support and trust for the private sector doing that is probably the single most important thing. But, yeah, no, absolutely right. I'd spend more on the government side. But uh, that's not going to be why. These, uh, these national champion companies you mentioned who will be leading us in our, in our great AI war against the Chinese, Google, uh, Microsoft, uh, who knows, Facebook. Uh, these are also the exact same co companies that people think that some people think are a real problem with the economy. They, they're worried about too much corporate concentration, too much corporate power, and they point to these big technology companies uh, as as the prime example. And there's been calls on the left and the right to either heavily regulate them, uh, maybe even break them up. Is now the time to be uh, to be rethinking our relationship with these big companies and maybe, I don't know, you know, dismantling them or turning them into public utilities, which I'm sure the people who say that aren't even quite sure what they mean by that. But 
is big tech and, co- and corporate concentration more broadly a real economic challenge or problem? I think it's a really vexing question. I'm really worried about um, corporate concentration and about market power. I think the easier cases are where it's not associated with a greater efficiency that benefits consumers. And I think, you know, I think a lot of what we've seen in sectors like airlines and hospitals has not really benefited consumers but has benefited the companies. And the answer there is being more vigorous about antitrust enforcement. And if you get the balance a bit wrong, maybe there's some consumer benefit you'd lose but probably not. It's a relatively small downside of a mistake, potential upside. I think the tech sector is much trickier because I think the number one reason it's grown the way it has is that there's a real efficiency of that scale. And if you, you know, then it becomes more like a natural monopoly or more like a utility. If you regulate it really well, I think we could probably improve on the free market system. If you regulate it badly, it could be terrible um, for the U.S. economy. So I think it's a really perilous area. I don't think the right answer is to do nothing, um, but I don't think there's any model for regulation that I'm confident enough in right now that I'd want to rush ahead in. So I think we should have lots of debates and discussions of the issue. Do you think there is evidence out there that that these – that the biggest technology companies are in a way suppressing – we talked about, the, oh, they're doing all this AI research. But there's also argument that they are somehow suppressing innovation, that, um, that, that they're, they're, buy, they're buying up these small companies right. who can't become challengers and they don't scale. Is there, is there good evidence saying that these companies are actually making our innovation problem worse? I think that's a real possibility. A lot of innovation is done by small, scrappy challengers. Mm-hmm or by big companies that are afraid of small, scrappy challengers. And right now you don't have the same small, scrappy challengers, and the big companies aren't afraid of them. We see this well-chronicled decline in dynamism, um, new business formation. Businesses are increasingly large and and old. So I think that's definitely something to be worried about. Um, You know, on the other hand, a certain amount of startups are because people want to get bought off and get bought out. Right. You know, if there's more a liquid market for exiting from the startup phase, then, you know, maybe you get more startups. So you could argue it either way. I think on balance, it, it makes me nervous. And, you know, if it's because, you know, I, you know, we shouldn't have 13 Facebooks. Like it's a benefit to all of us being on the same social network that really is an external basic uh, benefit. Did Facebook need to own WhatsApp? No, I don't know how much our consumers are benefiting from that particular form of consolidation or how much innovation is benefiting from it. Um, uh, we're getting toward the end, so I may, I may ask for somewhat shorter responses. I'm going to try to do a little rapid fire. Uh, uh, are you worried about the debt at a GDP ratio of like 75%? And if not, what is the ratio which you'd start worrying about the U.S. debt just being too big and starts to bite growth and all these other bad ramifications? I'm are we worried, close to it? I'm worried when I see the debt rising as a share of the economy in good economic times. So I'm more about sustainability. And so, um, you know, the, the rising debt right now, and I, I think, is just nuts.
Right, but it's it's is there a, is there a tipping point? I mean, there was a lot of debate a few years ago about ninety percent or some other I don't think percent. How, so how do you know when it's? I don't think, it, how do you know when it's it's too high? Is it the markets think, telling you or? I don't think there's any evidence for a tipping point. I think each percentage point of GDP on the debt is interest rates a little bit higher, and so this is like termites in the woodwork. I wouldn't sit around waiting for a financial crisis. That doesn't mean the debt's not hurting us. It is. Uh, if you wanted to boost productivity growth, what? It, uh, we mentioned a little bit about investment. Uh, are there any other policies uh, they think are that maybe aren't people naturally think of, which are which have been hurting growth or, or depressing growth in recent years? I don't know housing, maybe and land use regulation. I know that's something you've written about. Housing and land use regulation. Uh, you can answer all the questions yeah, for me. And, I, th- I think, um, yeah, I, I think there's a, a lot of evidence that if you know where people are really matters for productivity. And having conglomerations of people in the most productive areas is great for the economy. And right now, a lot of people can't afford to live in those areas. So I do think knocking down those land use regulations, I think. What can the federal government do about that other than talk uh, about it? Yeah. And the other one, by the way, I'd add to that list before we get to that is occupational licensing, which which prevents a lot of people from moving between occupations and also prevents them from moving across. Non-compete agreements also toss up. Non-compete agreements, I throw that in as well. I think one thing the federal government can do, which I certainly tried to do at CEA, is, is a certain amount of bully pulpit and educate. We used to talk to governors and mayors about those issues. When I was in the White House, we put out a template for what you could do to deal with it. Um, I think there's some federal money that could be created as an incentive to deal with those issues as a penalty withdrawing those funds if you don't deal with those issues. Um, you know, do we want to have some federal reciprocity for licenses? I think that's something we should be um, thinking about. The FTC can do greater enforcement on the antitrust violation aspects. This is with occupational mm-hmm. licensing. doesn't work with land use. But look, a lot of this is, you know, if if San Francisco wants to have really stupid rules that you know, benefit the people that own housing there already and hurt everyone else and hurt the economy. Um, you know, I don't know that we, at the end of the day, can do something about that federally. Right. And again, another big topic, and uh, the whole show, uh, show on this is uh, trade and China. Does the U.S. need to do something to trade, to, to change how China interacts with the global economy? And if it's, and if so, and it's not tariffs, how do we do it? It would be a mild plus for the United States to do something. And it's not like we haven't been doing anything. The number one issue on the agenda for the United States for about 10 years was Chinese currency. And the Chinese um, currency did appreciate a lot, about 30 percent, as the Bush administration, the Obama administration put pressure. Not, not all of our national leaders have noticed this. Uh, that is true. <laughs> China's liberalized in some areas of trade and opened up. You know, they seem some, to be going in the wrong direction, though. They seem uh, to be. They seem to want to subsidize their companies more, uh, and they're cutting a lot of capacity out of steel and aluminum. A lot. I mean, five million jobs, twenty percent of their capacity. Can you imagine any other country in the world that would, as a government policy, get rid of five million jobs in a critical industry? So. And now, you know, everything in China, you need to multiply by something to translate it into our terms. So I think they're in a number of places they have actually made progress. I think they need to make a lot more progress. And the right way to do it is to put pressure on them through places like the WTO where we consistently win cases 
and on a multilateral basis, not doing it. But you're not going to. But, but we're not going to gauge it by the trade deficit. We're certainly not going to measure it by the trade. Because apparently, some of our national leaders are gauging it by the trade deficit. There's no economist that would ever look at a bilateral trade deficit to gauge anything. All right. So now, so now I'm going to now we're going to now I'm going to go super fast and finish off. These are questions uh, from Twitter. Okay. Uh, which, uh, when you realize I was doing it, you almost backed out. No, not seriously. But these, are, and then these, these are. Uh, I think they're all pretty good questions. Um, actually, almost all of them are really good. But real fast, ready? Um, the policy change the U.S. can make, which would most likely increase long-term growth. I immigration, immigration, more immigration, uh, and uh, and then not just care what kind, high skill, low skill. I take it all because we have labor. And we also get uh, more TFP, more innovation from it. Okay. Um, your ideal infrastructure plan? I would place just as much weight on how we are paying for the infrastructure and how people are paying to use it as I would on how much we spend. So that would I get more excited about congestion charges in cities, oh, paper, oh, driving. Um, you know, you know, people complain about Kennedy Airport. There's a solution to that, which is something called the passenger facility charge. Everyone who buys a ticket for a plane leaving or arriving at Kennedy can pay a larger passenger facility charge. Those people will enjoy a better airport, and the people that don't fly in and out of Kennedy won't have to pay for it. We think about the idea of moving some federal agencies out of D.C. into sort of these left-behind areas uh, of the United States who have been you know, hit maybe by, by China trade and moving them to Detroit or – West I think it's Virginia. a bad idea. And the government's goal should be to be as efficient as possible and deliver the best value for taxpayers. And having it being consolidated spatially is the right answer every time they move someplace else. It's for a political reason, not for government efficiency. Uh, which is the better job, Fed chair, Treasury secretary? I think Fed chairs, it seems like a pretty boring job because you meet every six weeks and make a relatively trivial decision about interest rates. Treasury secretary is much more varied. Sounds very exciting. Uh, and, uh, and finally, uh, if you like science fiction and you love economics, what's the best science fiction for economists? The classical answer to this question is the Foundation <laughs> Trilogy, which I'm aware of that on. I have not read but, that, and some uh, of the economists here have uh, made that clear but, to me. But the, the three-body problem is just brilliant, and recommend that to everyone. All right. Well, that'll be a future three-hour podcast. Jason Furman, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Ricochet. <laughs> Join the conversation.